Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Aaron White, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Rochester. Aaron, welcome. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Today we wanted to talk about something that you have been working on that you call the Decompositional Semantics Initiative. Do you want to give us a brief description of what this is? Yeah, sure. So before I actually say anything about the project itself, I do want to point out that the Decompositional Semantics Initiative, or we often just call it DECOM for short, is actually a pretty large effort spread across a few different sites. So I'm definitely not the only one working on it. <laughs> But people can check out all the different projects on the website at DECOMP.io, which kind of lists how we mix and match people on each project. But in particular, beyond myself, Ben Van Dermy, Kyle Rollins, and Rachel Redinger at Johns Hopkins have been major driving forces in the project. So I think what I'll do is I'll start out first with sort of the overarching goals of Decomp. And then I can say a little bit about how we kind of implement those general goals, depending on your interests. Right. Sounds good. Okay. So the big idea behind Decomp is really to rethink the prototypical approach to semantic representation and annotation that the field has been hacking on for the last few decades. And so there's basically two major parts. The first is that we're interested in capturing semantic properties of sentences, or really more generally phrases that are both really simple, for one, and linguistically well-motivated things you can actually expect to extract from lexical and syntactic information that linguists think we can extract from lexical and syntactic information. So if I say the vase broke, the kinds of properties we're talking about are, is the vase referring to a particular thing? Well, probably yes. Is it referring to a kind of thing? Probably no. Did it change during the breaking? Probably yes. Was it volitional in the breaking? Probably no. The upshot of having a bunch of simple properties is that everyday people can answer questions about those properties. And that means we can collect data pretty easily from naive speakers. So I said there are two components. The second major component is that we treat semantic representation as massively multi-label and continuous, where the interpretation of the continuity is in terms of likelihood, right? So it's sort of the likelihood that particular properties actually hold. And so rather than building some big multi-class system with a bunch of nominal categories, we have this sort of multi-label system. And so, you know, this is distinct from a traditional approach where you first define some big, fairly broad coverage ontology that you're sort of interested in capturing. So if we were talking about semantic roles, which was one thing that we've looked at in a kind of traditional approach, you might take the kind of classic categorical distinctions you get from the theoretical literature, like agent and patient, and then you'd annotate a little pilot data and realize you need instrument, you'd annotate a little more, you need stimulus and theme, etc. And then you'd sort of keep iterating until you were at a point where you're like, okay, I can write an annotation manual, you write your 100 page annotation manual, and you deploy your undergrads to annotate a bunch of data. The big problem that we saw with that approach is that It often works a lot better in theory than in practice. And so a big part of it has to do with the fact that with these big predefined multi-class ontologies, there are agents, there are patients, instruments, stimuli, and whatever else is in your massive ontology, but that's it. These sorts of predefined ontologies always have things where there's either no clear label or where you sort of want to give multiple labels. So you might say, oh, I kind of want to give agent and stimulus to this or something like that, right? So what happens in practice is that a bunch of these problem cases accumulate until you realize you're missing a class that you're piloting 
that didn't consider, and then you push out v1.1, etc. So our thinking with decomp is that the only preset ontology is the set of properties we select. And then you can always grow that ontology whenever you want without re-annotating a bunch of data. So that means that you can accumulate more and more properties and give yourself access to what looks like from the standard multi-class ontology, arbitrarily fine-grained classes, right? And the properties remain interesting. That was a good overview. Can we make it a little bit more concrete with a specific example? Let's take semantic role labeling, which you've been talking about. Once we identify some predicate, typically a verb, we try to find the arguments of that verb and say what role those arguments are playing in the sentence. Maybe Joey refused to eat his vegetables. You can maybe get a little bit fuzzy with what predicate you're annotating. Let's say that refused to eat is a predicate, or maybe some formalisms would split this into two separate ones, but let's say refused to eat is a predicate. Then we have arguments here, Joey and his vegetables, right? And so a traditional semantic role labeling would define, as you said, a set of possible roles and then assign a specific label to each argument in the sentence to Joey and to his vegetables. For instance, Joey would be the subject role or maybe agent, depending on exactly how you're defining this ontology. And his vegetables would be the object or theme, or maybe there are a few other options you could have. How would you treat this differently with this decompositional semantics? So this is basically the first big data set that we put together under this project. So for semantic roles, whatever ontology it is, agent, patient, instrument, etc. The idea was to kind of decompose the particular classes like agent, patient, etc. into a bunch of simple but interesting properties based on, in this case, a particular theoretical perspective that's due to David Doughty on what's known as the linking problem in linguistics. And so I won't go into depth on what that is, but it's basically just trying to explain how languages take event descriptions, conceptual event descriptions, along with all their participants and map them onto linguistic expressions. So it's sort of the opposite problem of semantic role labeling. And so Doughty's basic idea actually was that semantic roles aren't really discrete categories, they're really dense areas in some underlying space, but defined by a bunch of simple properties, and specifically simple properties that humans tend to care about, like causation, intention, change, etc. It's a little more complex than that, but I think that's enough for our purposes. What our group did, and this is actually work led by Deanne Reisinger and Rachel Rudinger, who you talked to last year, uh, what we did was to turn each of the properties into a bunch of simple questions that we asked about pairs of predicates and arguments. So in the same way that in prop banking, you might have given A0 to, I don't remember who the subject of your refusing to eat case was, but Joey. Yeah, Joey is an A0 and and his P's or whatever uh, is an A1. In our case, what we're going to do is say, okay, well, we have the same sorts of predicate argument structures, right? But what we're trying to do is actually label particular relational properties, things like the questions I mentioned earlier. Let's take a non-negative case, and we can talk about the negative cases later, but Joey did eat his P's or something like that. You might ask, did the peas cause the eating? Well, not really. Joey probably caused the eating, right? Did the peas undergo a change during the eating? Probably yes. Did Joey? Probably not in the same way that the peas did, right? And so this language of probably and likelihood is actually baked into the protocol as well. So people, when they're annotating these sorts of things, get access. Well, maybe, maybe not. Or like, yes, definitely. Or definitely not. Or I don't know, like it's not really applicable in this particular case. And things like volition, I guess maybe that's related to cause. What Was this person like doing something on purpose? That's right. What other kinds of questions do you ask about these arguments? 
One big one is change. So different kinds of change. One thing that linguists have been interested in beyond changes of state, like some light went from red to blue or something like that. Um, you might be interested in, say, whether something was destroyed as a function of an event, whether it was created as a function of a, an event. Often agents are neither created nor destroyed as functions of events. So yeah, like volition is one of them. Another property that comes directly from Dowdy is sentience. And this is actually a very particular notion of sentience that is sentient as an entailment of what it means to be a participant in that event. So like Joe broke the vase. Joe is sentient, but it's not really necessarily an entailment as a function of the breaking that Joe is sentient, right? Because rocks can break vases, <laughs> right? And we don't really want to say that rocks are, are sentient. The properties themselves were drawn pretty directly from this theoretical literature. And that's actually true of a lot of the other protocols that we've worked on. So this generosity protocol is another case of this, that a, a tackle paper will be coming out on pretty soon. Great. Just to come back to this example again, Joey refused to eat his vegetables or Joey ate his vegetables. This example is pretty straightforward for semantic curl labeling. And so maybe it's not the best example to highlight why you might use this decompositional semantics. But you brought up Joey broke the vase versus the rock broke the vase. And here the syntax is identical. The semantic roles are a little bit more fuzzy because the way that Joey acted on the vase and the, the way that the rock acted on the vase are very different. It's in these boundary cases where splitting things apart into these questions really helps you a lot more than the traditional case. Right. The classic contrast, it's very clear that Joey is an agent and Joey broke the vase, but like the rock is not. And so like you could totally imagine a, a verb that is exactly like break, but where the vase shows up in the subject position. So why don't we have the vase broke the rock where the rock is being used to break the vase? And so actually, this theoretical perspective does quite well at explaining that sort of patterning, because you end up saying, okay, well, some of these things tell you you're going to be better in sort of subject positions. And some of these other properties tell you you're going to be better in object position. And say so change of state is one of those ones that is going to tell you, you probably want to show up in object position. Mm -hmm. Just to recap, for listeners, we've described this general notion of taking what was some complex formalism and breaking it down into simpler pieces uh, and annotating individual attributes uh, of some other formalism, talking particularly about this example of semantic role labeling. And I think in this discussion, we've given good motivation or a good description of one of the two motivations for this, which is that there are boundary cases that are fuzzy, and it's actually better to annotate this decomposed version of the semantics instead of trying to put it all into one more discrete kind of formalism. But there was another motivation that you mentioned that we haven't hit on very much. I wondered if you could say more about the ease of annotation. Yeah, so the other big tenet is we want to have properties that allow us to scale these annotation protocols and scale them in ways where people actually can agree on the answers to the properties. And so I was kind of giving a caricature of a standard way of going about doing semantic annotation. Like generally, you need fairly highly trained annotators to do even like prop banking, right? And in this case, the idea is that anyone can answer, did the vase change as a function of the breaking, right? It's like pretty straightforward. Insofar as we want our models to be able to interpret language the way that humans do or to do tasks that are relevant to language in the same way that humans can, then we should be sort of annotating for properties that humans are able to annotate for 
or with high agreement. Just to nail down the point, this also lets you get, say, people in Mechanical Turk, right? And instead of trained linguists or, or whatever, it dramatically decreases the cost of annotation and the complexity. It's very nice in that regard. Yep. It's very related to QA SRL. Have you heard of this? Yep. And QAMR, it's a question answering representation for semantic role labeling. And QAMR is question answer meaning representation. Mm-hmm. These were by Luke Zettelmeyer and students that take a very similar approach for very similar reasons, but for larger sentence level structures where I think your decompositional semantics fits more lexical kinds of semantics. Is that fair? I actually think I'll push back a little on that. While there are some superficial similarities between the QA star work and decomp, when you kind of dig in a little deeper, I think the goals of the two projects really pull apart. QA star is focused more on the predicate argument structure, like the kinds of stuff that you would see in prop bank, like questions of who did what to whom, when, where, and how, right? Whereas in the decomp setting, we're more interested in the abstract semantic properties that aren't necessarily apparent from the structure of the sentence itself without some sort of further knowledge about what the words uh, in the sentence mean and how those meanings compose up. So like, if I asked about whether Joe caused something to happen in that running Joe broke the vase, you'd probably say yes, because you know what break means and, and how it gets together with its arguments. But I also think that that sort of example shows why decomp isn't really more about lexical knowledge than sentential knowledge, as you noted for the case of QA star. So something I know about break that tells me about the fact that Joe caused something. But it's not really just about break, right? It's about break when it occurs in sentences of a particular structure, and probably with some particular lexical items in that structure. So I definitely don't make the same inference about the subject in the sentence, the vase broke, the vase didn't cause anything there. So I need to know about the aspects of the sentence as a whole to answer questions about particular items in the sentence. I actually think that this is maybe even more convincing in the case of some of the generosity stuff that we've been interested in. I really liked your answer to that question. And just to make it even more clear, the rock broke the vase and Joe broke the vase. In QASRL, you would ask the question, did Joe break something and did the rock break something or similar? It's probably not exactly how QASRL works, but that's the basic idea. And in both cases, the answer is yes. But in decomp, the kinds of annotations that you would get on those two is very different. Right. This is a very good distinction. I would still say that they share the goals of reducing annotation costs and using natural language questions as a more general, or I guess you're breaking things down and QASRL isn't like breaking things down as much, but it is, they're, they're both using simpler questions that average people on the street could answer about language to try to get different kinds of annotations. That's right. I do think the distinction between having a span-based output and a scalar output is one of the important distinctions between them. So obviously, the fact that we're kind of looking for deeper semantic properties is is one. But the other is that it is quite a different task if you were trying to build a model to do it. Yeah. Okay, great. I think we've got a good handle on decompositional semantics as it applies to semantic role labeling. You've mentioned a few other areas in which you've applied this general idea. Do you want to tell us about them? Yeah, sure. So and I actually think this is relevant to that distinction. So I can get back to trying to convince you that they are different, even if you're <laughs> <laughs> Even if you're already convinced, I'll try to convince the listeners. Okay, so one of the data sets that we just recently put out, it's going to tackle paper will be out imminently on this, probably by the time the, the podcast comes out. Looking at linguistic expressions of generalization, this was done by my student Venkat Govindaranjan. We often talk about
about expressions of generalization as a sort of a clause level phenomenon. So I'll give you some examples. So if I say Bo ran yesterday, that's probably about a particular event of running. Like it's kind of, it's spatiotemporally bounded, right? Like I can point to this time in the past where this event started and stopped. Well, if I say Bo runs every day, that's some sort of generalization over events that Bo participates in. And if I say greyhounds run fast, that's a generalization about a kind of thing, namely the kind of, of thing greyhound. You can definitely talk about each of these examples in a multi-class way. This sort of misses the fact that there's a tendency for each of those classes to be built up from particular semantic components. We often talk about that Bo ran yesterday sentence as an episodic. It's like about a particular episode. That involves a particular participant and a particular event. Similarly, Bo runs every day. We say that involves particular participant, but kind of a generalization over a kind of event, right? Namely running. And greyhounds run fast is sort of a kind of participant in a kind of event, roughly. In this data set, we actually go about trying to decompose these, what are often thought of as clause level classes into properties of the participants on the one hand and the events on the other. And so in that sense, we are looking at lower level phenomena than sentences. But in another sense, we are representing the sentence as sort of a concatenation of all the features, right? So of all the features of the of the predicate and of all the features of all of its arguments. I think it's a nicely fine-grained way to look at genericity. So can I push on this a little bit to be sure I understand? Yeah, yeah. In your examples, it sounded like the distinctions you were making are largely tense. That this is already grammaticalized in English and other languages in terms of tense. I'm sure there are examples that make this break, and I don't know what they are. Like someone ran past tense is typically episodic, and we have other tenses to describe periodic things in the past. So what what's different about what you're describing from grammaticalized tense? Tense is a good indicator when you know about particular properties of the kind of event you're talking about. It's definitely not a perfect indicator because I can actually just change the Bo runs every day sentence to Bo ran every day before he died, <laughs> right? And in that case, I know that it's a very similar kind of generalization. It's just that I'm talking about a past generalization as opposed to a, a current generalization. Yeah, and that's a really good example, again, of something where the meaning of the particular word depends on the rest of the context. This isn't a word level thing. It's the meaning of this word in the context of the sentence in which it appears. Yeah. And actually, one thing we do in this paper is a bunch of ablations with like, okay, well, what if you wanted to engineer a bunch of NLP features, including tense and plurality and all this stuff? So plurality is another thing that that probably matters. And compare that to a pre-trained language model. The pre-trained language model, of course, is going to do better. It actually doesn't do a whole lot better, which kind of surprised us. We were trying to like get the numbers up. Like we tried a lot and could not. So this was with Elmo. So this was actually stuff done before BERT and other systems came out. But yeah, you can actually do surprisingly well with just these hand engineered features. Yeah, I want to come back to that point in a minute. I don't think we should dive too much deeper into genericity, but maybe give a brief overview of what other kinds of things that there's factuality. We talked with Rachel about this in a previous episode where you want to know, did some described event in text actually happen or not? So like in our earlier example, Joey refused to eat his vegetables. Did the eating happen? This kind of thing is factuality. Are there any other aspects of decomp? Any other things you're decomposing? Yes, I will say actually factuality is the tip of an iceberg that we will be pushing out a, a new data set on soon. Uh, and so with a, quite a few more features, and I won't say any more than that. 
We've just scratched the surface with temporal relations, looking at trying to annotate pairs of events for continuous relations on these glider scales that have the boundaries of the event um, are sort of represented, as well as looking at event duration. And right now we're looking at decomposing other aspects of the kind of temporal structure of events. Um, and that will hopefully be, be coming soon. One of the early annotations was this multi-label annotation of word sense, which actually on the surface seems like it's not particularly decompositional. It's kind of a standard word sense annotation just deployed on a crowdsourcing platform where you have all the senses that are available in WordNet. You have a highlighted noun, you click a checkbox for the senses that actually apply. And then what we go back and do is ask, okay, for all the senses that do actually apply, what kind of super sense does that sense have? So the super senses are also called lexicographer classes. They're these somewhat coarse-grained entity types. And so that actually gives us a way of doing multi-label entity typing. That's what we currently have in terms of annotation. So we also have systems that actually go about predicting these annotations um, as well, but that's what we have in terms of the actual annotations. Interesting. Yeah, those are some really interesting projects. I'll be interested to see more when they when it comes out. Thanks. I think we've got a good handle on what the decompositional semantics is now at this point, what you're trying to do with all of this. What I wonder is... What's your goal here? Or maybe how do you think this will be used? There are a bunch of questions here. So is this trying to answer questions about language for linguists? Is this trying to produce things that you hope will be used downstream by other NLP models or tasks? What do you see as the best case outcome of this research? Yeah, so I think the answer to that is we would like this stuff to be useful to both the NLP and the computational linguistics slash theoretical linguistics community. So from the NLP perspective, I think that at the very least, you can think of decomp annotations as sort of providing a suite of probes for whatever kind of the fanciest new embedding representations are, right? You know, so if everyday people can answer questions about the properties, we annotate with high agreement. If you want a system that can do what ordinary people do, it should be able to annotate those properties correctly as well, right? And and even to take out the language of the probe, these are things that are in language. We, we want our language systems to be able to do this. Yeah, that's right. The hope is that there are actually further uses. Probing uses aren't the only ones that are going to be useful for practitioners. So another way you can imagine these things being useful is in secondary pre-training regimes. You know, you have your pre-trained language model and then you say, okay, well, I want the language model to focus on actually getting this thing right. And maybe that allows you to save some parameters down the line. I already know how to do this. So like I can focus on other aspects of getting this, this task right. Or maybe, it, you know, in controlling various kinds of generation models by say, enforcing that entailment should hold in the generated text. So I think beyond just the kind of probing aspect, I think there's a lot of, I hope there's a lot of stuff that people will find this useful for. Right. This is related to something you brought up earlier, and I said I wanted to come back to, and maybe this is more of a speculative question, so feel free to speculate. How much do you think all of this knowledge of semantics falls out of a language modeling objective? Do you think it's feasible that we can just learn this from Roberta or the, the next big pre-trained model? Will it just know all of this already? 
So I won't speculate in particular on whether that will happen. <laughs> so I will say actually that as a linguist, not even as someone interested in NLP, but as a linguist, I'd actually be very happy if you can find that the kinds of properties that we in particular are annotating for are learnable on the basis of distributional properties of the input, which is you know what the language model has access to. This is actually something I personally have a standing interest in since a lot of my linguistically oriented work from my dissertation onward has focused on what kinds of semantic information you can pick up distributional properties. So for instance, this is actually one of the driving forces behind the sister project of DCOM, the Meg Attitude Project, which is more focused on kind of type level lexical and structural information annotation. If it did turn out that the properties we annotate for have a homomorphic pre-image in some embedding space, right, like in get it from contextual embeddings or whatever, we'd still have at the very least the data sets could be used to probe which of those contextual representations actually do have such a, a pre-image, right? And we've actually did some early probing work back in 2017. We presented at IJCM NLP, uh, looking at how well various pre-training regimes do in helping capture these properties within an NLI setting. Beyond use as sort of a probe, though, I think there are legitimate reasons you could want to predict or at least pre-train on, on those sorts of properties for the purposes of downstream tasks. I've sort of already mentioned them. But for example, if you wanted to make different decisions for generic habitual and episodic statements and how they're used in knowledge-based construction or completion or something like that. Generalizations and particular episodes are very different things in terms of knowledge representation, plausibly at least. Um, and it's sort of an empirical question whether you can bypass the interpretable properties themselves or whether it's useful to have that information condensed into a single value and then fed, fed downstream. And like I said, I don't actually want to speculate on whether you you can or cannot do this in an end-to-end -end system. Like maybe you can, but at least it would be, it's useful data to understand whether you can or not, right? And of course, this is like all assuming that the language model pre-training will be enough for all the properties of interest. <laughs> I'm not actually totally convinced about it. So for instance, we spent a lot of time in the Genericity project really trying to get <laughs> Elmo to predict some of the actually event level Genericity stuff reasonably well. And the numbers were reasonable, but like even when we threw Bert at it, when Bert came out, when we've thrown anything else at it, <laughs> we have not been able to get those numbers and really past Elmo. So, I mean, I would love if someone could find <laughs> a way to actually predict those sorts of properties well, because I think it would actually be super useful for a linguist to have such a, a, a labeling model. One thing coming up that I'm pretty excited about is that sometime toward the end of September, we'll be releasing a data set that unifies all the existing annotations I just mentioned. So proto-roles, factuality, genericity, time, and word sense within a unified graph-structured format based on our predicate argument extraction tool, PredPat. And that will be bundled with a toolkit that supports arbitrary Sparkle queries on top of those graph structures. So that's something to look out for uh, in September. Yeah, this is really great. I definitely agree with this. At some level, because you're making this annotation cheap, presumably, like you could go crazy, someone like Google or Facebook or maybe AI too could just spend a bunch of money getting a whole lot of annotations and have a new way of pre-training or an additional pre-training objective. A lot of people are rightly skeptical that you can really get as far as we want to get just with a language modeling objective that we need to inject some additional source of outside knowledge, this whole meaning versus form discussion from linguistics. If we can get very cheap, useful annotations like you're doing with this decompositional semantics initiative, uh, then 
we could presumably just have better models in the end that know more about language, right? Yeah, that would be that would be great. Our emails are on the website, so let us know <laughs> if you guys are interested. <laughs> and really, this project is meant to be a big tent. It kind of grew out of a lot of work that was going on at Hopkins right before and while I was a postdoc, and then you know in my first few years at Rochester. It is meant to be something that other people can contribute to, and you know present other phenomena within a decomp-aligned framework. So we're very open to it being a big tent. Um, I was wondering to what extent the attributes that you define are tied to English. Have you have you looked at other languages and what the attributes would look like? Actually, one of the original <laughs> impetuses for this project was that we could actually extend a lot of these attributes beyond English. Decomp in general was driven by a Lorelei program. But uh, one thing that is difficult is obviously crowdsourcing non-English data. So it's not something that we have done at a large scale. We have done internal pilots on different languages, but we haven't really gotten annotations at a large scale. So that's a place that we would love to expand into. And just a very quick note, the Lorelei project was a DARPA project that was focused on low resource natural language processing. I funded my PhD, so <laughs> I'm very grateful. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting to see maybe there are some attributes with higher entropy in, in certain languages and lower entropy in others. I think that Yes. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. All right. That was all of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. Was there anything that you wanted to cover that we missed or any closing thoughts? No, I, th I think that about covers it. Great. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. This was an interesting discussion. Yeah, it was nice talking to you too. Thanks.